Is this some kind of test of your faith? What, you? Me, yes. Ain't my faith, you test it. You see everything in black and white. It is black and white. I suppose that makes the world easier to understand. You'd be surprised how little time I spend trying to understand the world. You try to understand God. No, I don't. I try to understand what he wants from me. And that's everything you need. If God ain't everything you need, then you're in a world of trouble. I don't make a move without Jesus. When I get up in the morning, I try to grab a hold to his belt. Sometimes I go into manual override. I catch myself. Manual override? Yeah, you like that? It's okay. I thought it was pretty good. So you come to the end of your rope, and you admit defeat, and you're in despair, and, and in this state, you seize upon this whatever it is that has neither sense or substance, and you grab hold of it, and you hang on for dear life. Is that a fair portrayal? That might be one way to say it. Doesn't make any sense. Well, I thought when we was talking earlier, you were saying that there were none of it that made no sense, talking about the history of the world and some such. Well, it doesn't on a larger scale, but what you're telling me is not a view of things. It's a view of one thing, and I find it nonsensical. What would you do if Jesus was to speak to you? <laughs> do you imagine that he might? No, I don't. But I don't know. <laughs> I'm not virtuous enough. No, Professor, it ain't nothing like that. You ain't got to be virtuous. You just has to be quiet. That play by Cormac McCarthy always preaches. If you don't know the story, an atheist and a blue-collar worker, he caught that part, uh, find themselves in one another's lives all of a sudden because the atheist was about to try to take his own life by throwing himself in front of a, a subway train. And somehow he falls into the arms of Samuel L. Jackson, who then brings him back to his apartment, and there ensues a debate of the universe about God, about love, and about life. And there in that moment, as they consider what it is that holds them together, Samuel L. Jackson invites him to consider that there might be something of this Lord that you cannot see, who has neither sense nor substance, and that he might guide. And what is, uh, what is Tommy Lee Jones' assumption? That one may only approach that throne if one is properly righteous, and fortunately, Samuel L. Jackson preaches the gospel. No, you don't have to be virtuous. You just got to be quiet. You just have to be humble. You have to humble yourself. Last week, we began asking the question, what does it mean to pray? What does it mean to practice the presence of God? To believe that he is there, that there is reality and activity by him in your life. And as we've just alluded to, from the beginning of the worship service when the moment from True Detective came on, what do you do? I pray. You mean you talk? No, I listen. What do you mean? I have to be virtuous? No, you just have to be quiet. The argument that we are making today is that before you ever should speak, you should try to be quiet. There's no way around it exactly. In fact, if you aren't, it's probably because you're nervous. We're going to begin by listening to the very first installment in the whole of Israel's prayer book, Psalm 1. And the irony about Psalm 1 is that every other psalm in the whole Psalter is a prayer, not Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a preparation for praying. 
which is for us what we're trying to do today. What does it mean to be prepared for praying? Psalm 1 is asking this question. What is the good life? What is the good life? And we're going to answer that question under four heads. The reality of a good life, the character of a good life, the reward of a good life, and then a key to the good life. The presupposition with which I begin is this. Prayer is a big part of a good life. In what way? In what sense? And how do we begin to pray? Someone, I think, is going to get us there. It's going to move us in that direction. So why don't we hear it again as if for the first time. Would you stand and we'll, we'll read it together, or I'll read it. You can just listen. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You, you may have a seat. What is a good life? Before we talk about what that good life is, we probably should argue first what the psalm is arguing, namely that there is a good life. So let's be very honest, let's be very basic here and say this. Life is good, a good life is better, and that good life is a life in God. That good life is a life in God. There's the argument. Where do I get that? The first three words. Blessed is. There is a blessed life. Hashtag blessed. At a very basic level, blessed means happy, satisfied, gratified. But this blessedness is tied to something else. How does Jesus begin his famous Sermon on the Mount? He gives you seven attributes of a blessed life, which several of them you go, wait a minute, that's a blessed life? Blessed are the poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake? Oh gosh, sign me up. Both the psalm and Jesus are arguing there is such thing as a blessed life. There is a good life. But that good life is tied to a sense that there is a God and that he is real and that he is active and that he blesses, that there is protection and provision and communion with him. That's a blessed life. That's the argument of the first three words of the psalm. Why do I need to say that to you if that's the argument? Why do I? Because of this. If you are here today because somebody drug you, or you are here today because, well, it's just sort of my habit, I'll listen, it may be the case that you think that God's primary word to you is this, I am God and you are not. I'm the heavyweight and you're the lightweight. I know what I'm doing and you don't know what you're doing. You need me, right? You know, what does the Old Testament say about God? I'm a jealous God. Which, if you read that in a certain way, through the lens of a human jealousy, you might think that if I don't listen to him, he's going to feel like a jilted lover. He's going to be hurt and sort of, uh, 
What did I do? It's not you, God, it's me, right? (laughs) The Lord's primary response to you is not that I am God and you are not. It's that I have something for you. Now, last week, we listened to Genesis 3, and Genesis 3 has Adam and Eve saying, or listening to a serpent who says, man, look, you're not going to die. He's just exaggerating. In fact, you can be your own God. And Adam is like, really? I'm cool with that. I'd like to be my own God, which is, I'd really like to cast off that kind of constraint. I'll do my thing. And what does the Lord kind of say to him implicitly? Yeah, you don't want to do that. You don't, you don't want to do that. But implicit in both the moment and God's response to it is this. I have a good life for you. And that good life has parameters. That his good life has expectations. But there is a good life, and I mean to give it to you. That's point one. I'm not here to insult your intelligence, but let's start there. There is such thing as a good life. A, good, a life is good, a good life is better, and that good life is in God. Point one. So what is the character of that good life? What makes a good life good according to that? Well, two things. Two things that I find here. And let me set it up by saying this. If you, some of you went to college, if you went to college, you did an application, maybe. You wrote an application, and maybe, maybe you got uh, an interview, or maybe you signed up for a scholarship, and you applied for a scholarship, and maybe they said, oh, we'd like to come talk to you. And, and, and they asked you, um, so tell me, uh, young lady, um, what, what is the definition of a successful life? What's success? And the good answer that you know, we would all sort of feel compelled to say is, well, I think a good life is, is reaching your dreams, uh, setting goals, and finding them. And as you know, that answer, as far as it goes, pretty good. But if that's your definition of a successful life, then there are some people who qualified for that good life. Um, Stalin, uh, Mao, uh, Pol Pot, Hitler. Hitler always goes first, but we'll name him fourth this time. You know, they all had goals, they had big dreams, and, you know, they met them for the most part. What is a good life in God? What is a successful life, in, so to speak? It's two things. The first of all, it's this a good life is one that is wise to the deceitfulness and danger of sin. A good life is, first of all, wise to the deceitfulness and danger of sin. Blessed is the man, you hear in verse 1, blessed is the man who what? Does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Three phrases, they build on each other. The wicked, the sinners, the scoffers, those are not three different constituencies. They're just synonyms for the same idea. People who look with Either ridic- with, with either curiosity, not even curiosity, with disdain, with ridicule, who, find, uh, who oppose those who would believe that God is or that God is good. They're all in that same camp. They reject, they oppose, they belittle, they demean, they persecute, whatever it is. But the reason that the psalmist chooses three phrases that are not all saying the same thing is to suggest a progression. The nature of sin is such that it's like frog in the kettle. At first, it feels rather innocuous. And then perhaps you begin to notice if insensibly the heat is turned up, and then you're dead. And it is the way sin works. It is the capacity to see sin on the horizon, 
and see it approaching and not waiting for it to come up at your front door before you take measures. Uh, we have a, a mentor in our life who reminded us of what is a great definition of adulthood recently. And, and he argued adulthood can be boiled down to two things. One, the ability to say no to yourself and the ability to anticipate outcomes for your actions well in advance of actually committing them. To which we would add a third thing. Oh yeah, adults pay for stuff too. <laughs> details, details, right? The ability to say no to yourself and the capacity to be able to anticipate outcomes of your choices well in advance of you committing them. That's it. Now that's just the nature of life. That's the nature of wisdom. You are wise if you can say, you know what, I, I, I better not do that. I, I know what will happen if I do. Or if I do that, this will probably happen. And therefore, let's do our little cost-benefit analysis here and go, mm, maybe not. That's just wisdom. That's facing life. One subset of facing life is facing sin. And sin always presents itself just like the fruit was presented to Eve and to Adam. Not bad. What could go wrong? Looks pretty desirable. And I'm starting to feel a flush of interest in it. Why not? It's the nature of what sin does. It never, it, it always hides the worm. Right? You see it. You don't know what's going to happen. It's like, you know, what could one time matter? We all have stories like that. We all know where it'll go. The character of a good life is, first of all, being wise to the deceitfulness and danger of sin, of being able to know how it functions and how you are given to it, such that you are then alerted to its first rising up in your world in order to avoid it. That's the nature of it. It begins with, as he said, walking in the counsel of the wicked. It begins, counsel, what is that? That's about thinking. That's about a mindset. You're thinking about those ways. That's how it all starts. It always starts with thoughts, right? And then where does it go? It says, nor, nor stand, no, stands in the way of sinners. So now we're talking about behaviors. Starts with a mindset, begins, then progresses towards making choices, and finally it, it culminates in, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You start thinking in a certain way, then you start behaving in a certain way, and finally you start identifying with that way. It never just happens like that. There's always a progression to it, and the character of a good life is aware of that. That's how you gain your wisdom. That's the first aspect of the character of a good life. The second I kind of try to find a way to characterize this or summarize this, but you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to go with the image that the psalmist uses, which you cannot improve upon. What is the character of a good life? It's like a tree. It is like a tree. Mm -hmm. uh, here's a loblolly pine, the, uh, one of the flowers of North Carolina. Flowers. One of the uh, pine is this, this, this tree of North Carolina. Apparently back in 1963, there were six or eight different pines that they all considered to be the, the, the you know, state tree and all of the lobbyists you know came out and said loblolly no what no they didn't pine tree the pine tree is the state tree of north carolina and what does a tree do what makes a tree successful what gives a tree a good life namely first of all it seeks out and is situated by what strengthens it now a tree doesn't choose where it grows so to speak but a tree wherever it grows knows where to look for that which strengthens it it is like a tree planted by streams of living water 
there are some trees that need less waters than the loblolly pine. There are some trees that need less water than sequoias. But there are no trees that need no water. Just ask Mickey. Go stare at a tree this afternoon. And then call Mickey and ask him which one it is. And he'll give you the Latin name. It's the way it is. Any good tree will have, so to speak, kind of speaking in like a, a human, they seek out and are situated by the place of water. What will strengthen it? They do not avoid it. They do not deny that they are dependent. That is what Adam and Eve, first, the first lie they bit on. I'm not dependent. I don't require him. I'm good. I'll be fine. Autonomy is best. Kids believe that, and then they discover, oops. Adults believe that, and then discover, oops. Situated by that which strengthens it. And then as it's situated, it because it realizes this, it then manifests what it was meant to live for. It manifests what it is made for. It is a tree that plants itself by streams of living water that yields its fruit in its season. To live to fulfill its nature, to bear fruit of its nature. If it's an apple tree, it's meant to bear apples. If it's a pear tree, it's meant to bear um, pears. If it's a fig tree, it's meant to bear figs. All right, what are you and I meant to bear? Well, if you are made in the image of God, you owe your existence to God, then what you're meant to bear fruit in is godliness. What is godliness? You love the Lord and you love your neighbor as yourself. And those two things are interdependently yet distinct aspects of what it means to be godly. Those two things go together inextricably. You are made for that. You are meant for that. And that is the character of a good life. I, I read a, began reading a, a sermon this week by George MacDonald about prayer. It's from a text in Luke where Jesus speaks of his return. And uh, he says, you don't know when it's going to happen, so don't freak out. Like, chill. Mind yourself about other things. Stop trying to obsess about the signs that will tell you when he's going to come back. And George McDonald says, look, you can choose to live a life where you are just sort of totally fascinated with, you know, what should I look like? And gosh, what's happening in the Middle East? And maybe that's it. Maybe we all should get ready now. I wish we'd all been ready, right? You know the song. And George McDonald says this, you know what, I know a better way to focus your time. How about obedience? What does it mean to be obedient in this moment? When's the last time you have asked the Lord, what does it mean for me to be obedient in this given moment? Have you ever asked him that? Did you ask him at all this week? I had to. And so he says, if instead of speculation about the end times, as interesting as that will be, I'm not saying you don't ever think about it, but you don't fixate on it. Instead of a speculation, we give ourselves to obedience. What a difference would soon be seen in the world. Oh, the multitude of so-called religious questions which the Lord will answer with. Strive to enter at the straight gate. Many eat and drink and talk and teach in his presence. Few do the things he says to them. Ouch. Yes, believe in the grace of the Lord that there is nothing you can do to commend yourself to him. Yes, believe in the forgiveness of sin for which you offer nothing before. You offer nothing to God except your need. Nothing. He's not impressed with you that he would go, oh, I feel sorry for you. But where is this supposed to go? In that direction. You are made to manifest godliness 
and that's how it works. And at the same time that you're meant to manifest godliness, there is a sense in which you and I are not lost in the lean times. That's a character of a good life. You're going to suffer if you haven't already, and you may be right now. And you know what? A good life in God is not immune to suffering. I'm sorry if that's news to you. And here's the question. What happens when it happens? Like I said recently, borrowing from another pastor before, when suffering happens, you kind of discover what's really there. And you either become bitter or you become better. I want to show you this uh, clip that, that Craig found from a, a documentary of an artist who uses nature. It's called From Rivers and Tides. And just listen to him talk about what he sees when he goes and looks at trees. Where they've been in the ground, they've gone black. It's like a result of the exchange of energy that has taken place between the plants and the earth. And that, through that process, there was an exchange of heat that gives it this, when it looks charred, it looks painted, but it's not. That's just the root as I find it. And I think at this time, when spring is, is beginning, that it, it doesn't begin on the surface, it begins below. I am fascinated by those processes that are happening in nature over time, connected to the sun, the light, the tide, growth. The real work is the change. Sorry, not trees, but reeds. And the darkness of the root indicates, the, as he put it, the exchange of energy to transform it. And though he takes the reeds and he turns it into works of art to demonstrate a beauty of that which has happened beneath the surface. The character of a good life is such that what is beneath the surface is what accounts for what's above it. And when the psalmist says the character of a good life is like a tree in that it, not only does it yield its fruit in its season, but its leaf does not wither meaning there will be times when the water is not as plentiful as others. There will be times when the peace is not as it was. And the true character and the mark of someone who has a good life is not seen when the sun is shining, but when the struggle is present. And that exchange of energy beneath the surface is what accounts for that. And from that, something beautiful can emerge. And that's of God. And that resilience, if you will, is almost part of its own reward. Its own reward of a good life. That's the character of a good life, and that helps us get briefly here into the reward of a good life. The reward of a good life is, first of all, it is a life without fear of judgment. There in verses, the last two verses, five and six, 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The reward is seen in the contrasts, the stark contrasts, the black and white, right? Everything's a black and white to you, isn't it, Samuel? The contrasts. And, and what are we meant to see here in the contrast? Let's just consider on what is the positive side of that contrast. This good life, its reward is a life without fear of judgment. Alongside a life in which there is a community of the righteous who are no longer lying to each other, who are no longer hiding from one another, who are no longer maligning and are estranged from one another, who are encouraging one another and strengthening one another and confronting one another as the time calls for it. That's the nature of a community of the righteous. Not the people that look down on others, but among whom something has grown and is beautiful, and we bear it with each other, and we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep, and we confront those who are needed, and we are repentant for the errors of our own ways, and we acknowledge our sin to one another that we might get past it. That is the reward. And that reward of no longer worrying about judgment and being among a community that is a true community, where does that come from? It comes from this. What he says there in the last line, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. What does that mean? Like he can pick them up out of a lineup? Yeah, I, I know that guy. I know that guy too. And I know that guy. No. It means that you, he, you are known by him, but you are also loved by him. You're actually known by him and loved anyway. I know you. Oh, I know you. I'm going to love you anyway. That is the nature of the knowledge. Friends, where do we, what is the best example or the best reason for believing that there is a God who doesn't merely tolerate you begrudgingly, but both knows you in your fullness and loves you anyway? On what basis would anybody be confident of that? I know one. His name is Jesus. He stepped into the world become, to become what we are, that we might then, through his death and resurrection, become what he is. He would see us, love us, know us that we are frail, say to his disciples over and over again, why are you so afraid? You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? He did that. That's the picture of love. That's where we hang our hat. I have nothing else to offer you. I, I can encourage you, and oh, you're so good, and you're so, I, I'm good enough, and I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Do you know how many people do that? That's the basis of their confidence in themselves. Do you know how easily that is dismantled and crumpled? You need a voice from the outside. And that voice has to be as stronger than death. That's the reward of a good life. Which gets us all to what is the punchline of this passage and the punchline of the sermon. So what is a key to the good life? Before I tell you it, if you haven't guessed already, let me just tell you what you're up against for this key to ever function. There's a, a line in C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, in the middle one called Paralandra, where uh, one of the characters says this, inner silence is for our race a difficult achievement. There is a chattering part of the mind which continues until it is corrected to chatter on even in the holiest places. If I sat you in a room this afternoon and I just said, be quiet with your own thoughts, it would not take long before you go, get me out of here. 
anything but this. Give me a root canal. Do me a prostate exam. Anything. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have besmirched the pulpit. <laughs> Jennifer Fry is a professor of philosophy. She was at the University of South Carolina. She's now at the University of Tulsa, and she, she mentioned this week in response to somebody about our lack of inner quiet, especially about students in education, she said this, it's not just phones, but the fact that classrooms have deliberately become spaces where concentration and uninterrupted study is impossible. Between the apps, the Google Classrooms, and all the rest, it's noise and distraction all the way down, and it's a choice we've made. Oh no, what do we do? What is the key to a good life? It's what's there in verse 2, which you read it first and go, what? Verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's it. A key to a good life is finding your delight in the law of the Lord. Now, that's funny, a bunch of rules. I, oh, this is so awesome. Don't muzzle an ox on Saturday. Great, this is my, well, how delightful. That's not what he means. I love the 613 rules of the Old Testament. This is so, no. It is his law, the wisdom therein, the internal logic that you can find there, but it is also what he has said, what he has done, what he has promised. That's the law of the Lord. It's far more expansive, that term. And this psalmist says that there is delight to be found in that. How? Because he meditates on it day and night. He is attentive in a way that he is not attentive in other ways. I was going to show you a clip from a film that I still commend to you, and it's, it's this one. It's, it's called Integrate Silence, and it was made back in 2005, and a, uh, the documentary filmmaker called this um, monastery in France and said, we would like to do a documentary. And the abbey, the abbot of the, of the monas monastery said, you know, um, we're not ready for that. Call us in about 10 years. <laughs> 10 years pass 10 years pass and the abbey finally calls the filmmaker and says I think we're ready and so the filmmaker takes two years for pre-production one year of filming and then another two years of post-production and I'm not even going to show you a clip from it but I am going to commend you to see it it's called Integrate Silence and it's two hours and 40 minutes of just watching monks live with about a total of 20 minutes of anybody talking you might find it wondrous, and you might find it terrifying. And as Craig and I were talking about this before we went in this morning, he thought, you know what, what about something else? I, I, I will show you from that. The, the monk is, is, is in his office, and he's praying, and he's meditating, and he's getting up, and he's standing up, and he's kneeling, and, and all that's good. And, and other monks are out, you know, doing the garden, which is as much a place for meditation. Instead, Craig offered a suggestion, and I liked it. I'm going to show you this. This is not from a person who's a believer, and he's certainly not a monk, but he understands something that all of us need to understand. He's an artist. His name is Goldsworthy. And he's, what his, his version of art is taking nature, unlocking its secret, so to speak, and then creating artistic expressions through that. Kind of like the other guy, but this is different. Just took this out. The reason why the stone is red is because of its iron content. And that's also the reason why our blood is red, too. I do feel a, there is a special energy about, about the red. I mean, it's probably its relationship to blood. 
but probably something that I can't really explain entirely. I think it's the colour is an expression of life. Even though things die, they're part of that flow still. You know, they become part of the river of red. In Japan, you'll see a, a, a red maple tree against a green mountain. It's incredible red. And it's like, it's like an, a wound. It's like a wound in the mountain. There's such an energy and violence about that color. And I will all, I am in a continuous pursuit of, of the red. And I, I, I have this feeling that if, as I approach its source, the more I begin to understand the color. You know, it is, there are many lessons to be learned by, by, by that color. And I think that when the realization is, was that I, the color is also in me, you know, that then, then, it's it's this feeling of, a, of both a colour and an energy flowing through all things. He breaks up the iron ore, he exposes its redness, and then he casts it into the water. He has no category for Jesus or the gospel. It's fine, it, it's, but it's a perfect image of what does it mean? He's, he's recognizing that there is something to be reckoned with in the things that are right under your nose that you have to give your attention to. Now, whether I show you a bunch of monks praying in a, in a cloister or this guy focusing on iron, you may look at that and go, <laughs> come on, that's nutty. I can't do meditation, no thank you. Andrew pointed me to a really good book that I commend to you from a guy named John Mark Comer called Practicing the Way. And he's very honest with us all when he says this. For years when I read about monks and nuns who gave up a normal life to do little else besides pray, I'd think they were a little crazy. But what if we're the ones who are unhinged? We who would rather binge Netflix or go shopping or play fantasy football than commune with love loving? Who would rather give the vast majority of our time to slaving away for some job that will chew us up and spit us out the moment we're no longer useful to the bottom line? Who choose to spend hours every day on your phones yet claim we don't have time for God? In other words, you're already meditating. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. It's not about whether you're attentive. It's just what you're attentive to. And the psalmist is arguing that your attention ought to go in particular directions at times. You should focus on the red. You and I need to think about the blood. The blood that's in me. The blood that was in him. The blood that we will consume here in just a moment. Yes, your mind my mind has to go there at some regular interval for some length of time because something else will occupy your mind otherwise. You can't practice the presence of the Lord until you give your mind to that. So Thomas Watson, a Puritan, he said this, meditation without reading is erroneous. Reading with meditation is barren. I think he means reading without meditation is barren. The bee sucks the flower, then works it in the hive, and so turns it to honey. By reading, we suck the flower of the word. By meditation, we work it in the hive of our mind, and so it turns to profit. 
Meditation is the bellows of the affection. While I was musing, the fire burned. The reason we come away so cold from reading the word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. It's what the psalm is calling us to. It's what Jesus is calling us to. It's not just a sense of facts that you kind of put in a file and you put away in a filing cabinet and go, yeah, it's there, and I get it. Meditation is the beginning of praying. What do you do? You, you pray? You talk? No, I listen. The word in the psalmist there for meditation is literally, I recite it quietly, and then I think about it. There's a resource in your sermon resource page this week from a, a letter that Martin Luther wrote to his barber when his barber asked, what does it mean to pray? And, and Martin Luther just says, every once in a while when I start to feel my heart cold, I go away into a secret place and I, I begin reciting a little bit of the creed or a little bit of the Ten Commandments or a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount and I, then I pray in response to that. that. That's this. I'm inviting you now that we are in the season of Lent and I'm inviting myself the same who is in need of it as anybody else is for us to practice presence by practicing meditation. There is a document that's in the resource page this week that we helped collaboratively put together this week that Stacy Chacon obviously, always, as always, created it in a beautiful way. It's a chart. And that chart has for you an assignment for every week of Lent to meditate on one of three themes every day. Who he is, who his are, and what life he has for his. Got that? Who he is, who his are, and what life he has for his. Now go back to the chart. And each day, there is one of those themes, either who he is, who his are, or what he has for his. And each of those themes has a particular passage. And you'll see that passage, and you can go to that passage, and if you want to read the sound around in paragraph behind it, great. If you already have a rhythm, please don't feel like you get to adopt this to be happy. This is if you have no rhythm. Here's a rhythm for you. You just sit with that text, and you should expect all manner of distractions. If I'd shown you the clip from Integrate Silence, I think it was very purposeful that they showed the picture of the monk meditating with the sounds of mosquitoes in the background. Welcome. That's your memories. That's your preoccupations. That's your estranged relationships. They will come after you. Push. Just push. Push through. Each day, something to reflect on, something to meditate on. And if words come out of that meditation, fantastic. If they don't, it's okay. Just listen. Simone Weil, she died in 1944. A really remarkable story. But she said this, not only does the love of God have attention for its substance, the love of our neighbor, which we know to be the same love, is made of the same substance. In other words, your attentiveness to the Lord through meditation that may give rise to prayer is absolutely the groundwork for you ever to love him or to love one another as you ought. It's the gospel. That's the mandate. That's the invitation. That's the exercise. And if you've never done it, it will oppress you and you'll hate it for a minute. Um, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and not that he meditates day and night. Let's pray. Help us, Father. We're frail and you know it. We know we are dust. To dust we shall return. We are so frightened. We have little faith. 
we are as distracted as the next gnat that flies near our heads. But we believe that you meet us there, and we ask that you'd strengthen us in what is ahead for us in these next days, anticipating the moment when we shall give thanks again that you are risen. In his name we pray. Amen.